0: Enthralling, exciting, immersive. None of these words could sensibly apply to the three and a quarter hour wet smurf a to Stogathon that is Avatar <laughs> the Way of Water. Blurb of the Year from Mark Carmody of The Observer in UK. I don't agree. I think it's a really good movie, but a hell of a blurb to kick things off. Avatar The Way of Water, one of our featured reviews this week. We got lots of new movies to talk about. Avatar just roared into theaters, but coming out this Friday, as we're recording this on Monday, December 19th, babble on. Massive film starring Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt from Academy Award-winning director Damien Chazelle. Also coming up this Friday, Women Talking, Sarah Pauli's new film, Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley. Also in theaters, The Inspection, starring the Golden Globe nominated Jeremy Pope. Also available on Netflix, December 30th, White Noise, starring the Golden Globe nominated Adam Driver. We got lots. And in fact, there's even one that I didn't even tell Cody about because it's one of the worst movies of the year. I'll reveal that in a second. But that's 8 movies we reviewed last week and we're doing 6 movies this week plus we have a wild card. It's author Michael Starr of the new book Don Rickles Merchant of Venom. He's got great stories about Rickles working on Casino with De Niro and Scorsese working with the great Richard Lewis uh, Toy Story, Larry Sanders Show awesome stuff here. So a lot of 14 movies we're packing in the next two weeks and by the way Chris and I are off next week for the holidays so our first episode of January will feature reviews of All Quiet on the Western Front, the German film which is up for a Golden Globe Best Foreign Film, The which is uh, from Florian Zeller. He did the father, which won Anthony Hopkins and Oscar. The son is his follow-up. Hugh Jackman just got nominated for Best Actor, the Golden Globes. But most importantly, my buddy Alpha Helwan, Waiting Among Many, the top ten films of 2022. I'll give you my top ten list on the next episode of Cinephile, which will be coming out in early January. But Cody, a lot of good feedback to our last episode, which featured a 25 minute review of Moss Miami. So much so I came on the Dan Lebertard show last mm. week. You called me up. First, I got a spam Risk Miami. I go, okay, I can't answer this call. And you texted, call the liner, I'd do it. I love being on with you guys. The main takeaway was just my walking tour of Miami. But how about the fact, in the midst of my answer about Top Gun, you guys just cut me off? Just just a throwback to the old show, Vert cut off mid sentence. You completely edited out my answer about the Mets. Stugats asked me about Kodai Senga, not in the interview.
1: Really? That, there must have been an issue there. There was no, like, discussion of, like, <laughs> oh, we need to cut everything Adnan just said. There might have been a technical issue. Sure. I, I didn't. I don't remember any discussion of we need yeah. to cut some of what Adnan just did. Mike
0: Ryan went rogue because somebody somebody actually tweeted me. goes, hey, I love the fact Adnan's interview was cut off. What a great callback. And I go, what do you mean it was cut off? I'm like, no. So I listened to it. We had all the Miami walking tour stuff. We had a little bit of Top Gun. And then Stu was like, oh, how could you say it's bad? Like, I didn't say it was bad. I said it was adequate. And then psh- Cut off. I go, this is unbelievable. These guys did it to me again. I swear. I mean, that that
1: is, <laughs> is news to me. I will investigate.
0: Right. Mike Ryan going rogue, baby. Um, <laughs> speaking of, make sure you support Mike and Woody. They've done an awesome job watching the World Cup. I tell you, I, I don't think Cody and I are huge soccer guys, but one of the greatest sporting events ever, that World Cup final. I still can't believe it Oh, my God, dude. Awesome it,
1: it is I, – I have not gotten over it over either. <laughs> I watched it with my dad, and then we had hours of football, and then, like, I was back in my dad's house for dinner – and i just we looked at each other like i haven't stopped thinking about it like this all this football yesterday was on all that football on on sunday just after that world cup game i didn't like right. ca- i watched it but I don't remember any of it. All I remember is the World Cup game.
0: It was awesome. I mean, any sport, as I always say, when it's at its best, it's awesome. It doesn't matter what the sport is. It could be handball. It could be cricket. When it's at its best, it was awesome, and certainly Argentina uh, living up to its billing against France with an epic match. Speaking of epic, though, that's what we're talking when it comes to Avatar. Finally, in theaters. If you need a refresher course, as do I, because I don't remember much about Avatar because I saw the original film, and I appreciated its Technical wizardry, certainly James Cameron doing something nobody else had done before when it came to the high def and 3D and the use of those cameras. But as far as the storyline was concerned, I, like many, said, well, it's just like Dances with Wolves, right? It's a big tree hugger movie, environmentally friendly. I appreciate what he's going for here, but eh, some of the dialogues and the characters, but he's back. And as I mentioned on last week's episode, very, very ambitious, not only Avatar 2, which is a $350 million budget, but also Avatar 3, he's cooking up, and he's written scripts for Avatar 4 and 5. But as you said, unless Avatar 2 is a hit, obviously, they're not going to keep giving me all this money to do all these things. So if you need a refresher course, as I said, maybe it would have helped to have watched the first Avatar, but I didn't watch it again. I just went in, I hadn't seen it, whatever, 13 years, took my kids to go see it. It's visually dazzling. There's no question about it. Like James Cameron does it. Do You do 3D.
1: Sorry to jump in. No, I you do through, 3D. I
0: thought about it, though. You're right. It was a seven o'clock showing and the eight o'clock showing. The eight o'clock 3D, and I go, this is over three hours. I'm not. I'm not going to make it to the end. Now right. I asked the guy. I said, Have you seen it yet? He's like, yeah. He said, Yeah. Do you do the 3D? He's like. No, because some of it's animated at times, like the 3D isn't totally necessary. I just find the 3D experience, I mean, I've done it, you feel a little goofy the whole time, but I I never get the huge added attraction. You, like when you see a movie in 3D, do you feel like there's added bonus to you?
1: It doesn't really do much for me, I'm not opposed to it, but I'm that child that has to like three times throughout the movie, look down and like (laughs) pull the glasses down and just see what it looks like, not 3D. Right. Right. How much I'm different like, is like, it I, without I don't this? care how many times I've seen it. I know it's going to look blurry, yeah. but I'm just interested. I'm like, oh, this thing's swimming at me. Let me see what it looks like. Up, oh, blurry. Cool. Yeah.
0: No, I'm with you, too. <laughs> I'm always curious what it would be without this. What if I just lost my glasses? And, and yeah. the whole thing is this. I'm with you. Like I, I, I appreciate an added bonus being available, but it's not mandatory to me. Unless people are running out to me saying, you have to see it in 3D. I'm like, okay, Like I'm sure it's cool in 3D, <laughs> but I'll see it as it is. And as I said, I like the idea does. of a
1: modern-day Mr. Magoo being made. In the opening scene, he's at the movie's and he thinks he's just still can't see, but he's just at a 3D movie without the glasses. <laughs> and then he walks out of the theater. He's like, oh, I can see now. I can see again. It's a 3D world <laughs> I was in. It's just a 3D movie. listen.
0: I'm going to patent that stuff, man. Someone's going to steal that idea from Cody Also, make a movie out of this. Uh, Whether it's 3D or not, uh, as I mentioned, visually dazzling. It looks like a video game at times. I mean, there's there's tons of action in this movie. That was part of my fear. I said three hours plus, man, there's going to be a lot of just boring scenes of monotonous storytelling. But it's a lot of action. I mean, almost at times wall-to-wall action. And the deep-sea photography, just the crystalline look of that blue. It's something that's hard to get out of your head. And I do think the narrative... Was a little better this time. There's some new characters introduced. I mean, if you remember the old film, the uh, Sam Worthington's character, Zoe Saldana, Sigourney Weaver cameo. So there is some new characters introduced as well. But bottom line is, it's just too long. I mean, I I, I went. To Actually time it because I said, well, they say seven o 'clock, but I don't think it started till seven twenty two according to my watch, and then it ended ten twenty four so that 's three hours and two minutes and i 'm not necessarily opposed to a long film. I mean, I love the Irishman, I love Lords of Arabia, but ultimately to me, I, I did think he should have trimmed the fat a little bit, but I can appreciate when you've got a three hundred and fifty million dollar budget when you 've made the highest grossing movie of all time it 's tough to tell yourself, you know let me just whittle this down to two twenty or two ten yeah. like I kind of want to empty the tank so uh, James Cameron does it again. I, I think it's a successful film. I'm curious how the box office is going to be, especially in today's world. I was looking at the, the numbers overall. The box office for this year is at 60% of what it was in 2019 pre-COVID, and one tenth of that was one movie, which is Top Gun: Maverick. So people are are nowhere near back to the movie-going levels they were pre-COVID. Like we're at 60% of 2019. Streaming, Avatar right? Too? That's got to
1: be like yeah. the, 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 how much of the pie chart is just streaming, though, right? I mean, exactly. yeah, the pandemic affected it, but it's just weird streamers now
0: right people say i just don't feel the need to have to go to the movies i'll just watch something on tv i'll watch the queen's gambit i'll watch uh, whatever the hell this uh, princess or i'll uh, watch
1: it when it comes out i'll rent correct. it on when it's on hbo max i'll like yeah i don't know
0: yeah it doesn't mean people don't love movies it's just there's less of a rush to go out to see the movie the banshees yeah. of inner Sharon, which is one of my favorite films of the year coming october 28th it's now on hbo so if you're just like oh, i'll just wait two months i'll watch it on hbo no problem
1: Important question on, on Avatar, though. Is yeah. I haven't seen it yet. Fan of the first one. Excited to see this one. I probably will venture out to see it in theater because of how big it is. Yeah. Um, did anyone at any point in the theater, one of the lieutenants, say, Welcome to Pandora. <laughs> because no. if no. that didn't happen, I'm yeah. a little less excited about the movie.
0: I'm sure it have at some point. I may have been nodding off at that point or working <laughs> on a slushie, but I'm sure at some point we got a Welcome to Pandora. To
1: pan- no, it's Welcome oh, yeah. to Pandora. <laughs> How, are you how often are you a movie you know movie savant mm-hmm. I'd call you falling asleep in a movie theater?
0: Well, listen with Avatar two specifically, I knew, I'm like it's going to be a challenge when we get to like you know tenish, but not that I'm. It's just it's three hours straight, right? So I, I generally don't, and if it happens to me, I'm pissed. Like there's that time yeah. I'll get that heavy eyelid moment, but I, sometimes I get a little too comfortable for my own. You know what I mean? I, I go reclining seat, I put the feet up. So it's my oh, yeah. own fault. I've got to be like no 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 you you've got to be you know,
1: what's your routine to snap it. out of that feeling? Cause I've gotten that feeling. Cause there's two times you get that feeling. Most it's in a movie theater or when you're like early morning driving and you're yeah. like, I got to snap out of this. Yeah. I need to, for me in the car, it's a little slap on the face. Yes. Maybe put some music on and start singing, like a song I want to sing along with. So I'm like, yeah. like I'll, the, I'll, I'll roll up. the window down, get a little fresh air going. If it's oh, a little fresh air like that. But what about in a movie theater though?
0: In a movie theater, sort I just have to kind of, I, I kind of do the slap. You myself. sit up, you like kind of yeah. sit up. I sit up, and I'm like on the edge of the seat, like as if I'm taking an exam and as if someone's watching me. So just don't get too comfortable.
1: If I'm The really, recliner really comes t- down, you take you like put the feet down. You're sitting up now. Yes, yes. So if I ever see you emerge from your recliner. Midway through the movie, I know you're tired.
0: Yeah, <laughs> 100. I'm like, I'm killing myself. I gotta kind of snap into action. If it's a really desperate moment, I'll go to the bathroom, and just slap cold water on myself. But wow, I, I won't often go to that extent. Like if I'm not yeah. tired like screwed, I'm just going to bed. The movie's nothing, right? But have you space- ever? I've
1: done that before too, where I've just taken the L, yeah. and it's like I'm not really loving this movie. Anyways, my yeah. wife's here watching it just Going to go to sleep. Yeah. And then at some point she nudges you and goes, Are you sleeping? And you're like, No, I'm no, not no. sleeping. But I'm completely nodding off for 10, 15 <laughs> minutes. It's a good cat nap. I wake up refreshed. If it's a good yeah. ending, great. If
0: it's not, well, I didn't miss much, anyways. Yeah. Avatar, I'm giving it three maple leaves. Once again, good movie. Very good way from James Cameron. As he does it again. We'll see what kind of uh, box office returns that will get. What I really want to talk about, though, oh, by the way, we'll get a couple of reviews in there. I mentioned the one that just completely slagged the film. Most of the reviews have been uh, solid 78% Rotten Tomatoes. Not overwhelmingly strong, but solid reviews. Uh, Sarah Stewart, a book and film. Globe delivers on its promise of expanding the scope of Pandora, and Rayford Guzman of Newsday: Avatar: The Way of Water is fully engrossing, always eye-popping, and occasionally touching. Like its predecessor, it's a movie to admire and enjoy, if not quite love. At the other day, if you love Avatar, if you walk around telling people Avatar is my favorite movie, like you just love blue people. Like it's just such an odd. Just, like you know what I mean, it's something you must love the Smurfs. You love blue man group. Like that was the best line of rest of development. He's like, I blew myself. He's like, there's got to be a better way to say that. But I, I, I'm always a little That's weird. That's such a
1: funny take. If yeah. Avatar's your favorite movie of all time, you just like blue people.
0: Yeah. Because after a while, because like, I'm sitting there going, is this one of the best films of the year? I'm like, ultimately, it is just a bunch of blue people talking. Bunch of strange people, <laughs> weird ears and stuff. Like, I can't I can't fall in love with these characters. I can appreciate them. Yeah. I don't know if I can fall
1: in love with them. So does, like, the, the, the it's called Avatar The Way of Water. Mm. So, like, is... That like I'm assuming just water. Like, what, how is the what's the connection to the story without giving too much away? Sure, uh, water and the story.
0: You're, I mean, seventy percent of the movie you're underwater. You feel like if mean, it's constantly, Jack is underwater. They're on islands. They're they're using water to their own means. How is water- it the same
1: thing where the man's coming for their underwater stuff and they got to uh, fight
0: for it? Let's just, let's just say environment does play a part once again.
1: <laughs> so it's the same one except underwater this time.
0: <laughs> I'm not going to go that <laughs> far, but the similar themes. Okay. <laughs> Um, let's talk about Babylon, which is roaring into theaters this Friday, a tale of outsized ambition and outrageous excess. It traces the rise and fall of multiple characters during an era of unbridled decadence and depravity in early Hollywood. Give it up for Damien Chazelle. This is a mighty swing for the fences. He wrote the script and he directed it. He made Whiplash, which kind of announced his arrival. It was a really quietly controlled, intense film, won an Academy Award for J.K. Simmons, who was so good in that movie, and obviously made a star of Miles Teller as it kind of announced his arrival. Then he makes La La Land, which is a spectacular song and dance film. The sequences in that are just breathtaking. The choreography, the opening song's amazing. And now he says, you know what? I want to make Babylon. I'm going to make an $80 million movie about the silent film era. You talk about financial risks. I mean, again, I don't know if Avatar 2 is going to make a billion dollars. Probably well, We'll figure it out. But Babylon, the fact that Damien Chazelle was able to convince the studio, give me $80 million dollars. I want to make a film about the movie industry from 100 years ago. I mean, you're talking about tough sell. Now, I think it's a very good movie. It's wildly entertaining, but I just, I just can't see it being necessarily a financial win. But what do I care? I'm not, the, I'm not the studio. I'm here to enjoy the movie. And the movie itself, well, let me tell you this. Well, the first scenes of the film, um, you've got two characters who are, who are literally trying to push a cart up. There's an elephant and the sequence shows an elephant literally taking a dump on these two guys, <laughs> and this isn't just like a little, you know, something that screams. Ron McGill would appreciate it. this is a, just an elephant taking a giant dump. The next scene you go to, this movie opens up thirty minute party slash orgy scene, and you see a hooker come out, the guy's big gut sticking out. She starts peeing on him. I go ten minutes into Babylon, you get an elephant taking a dump and golden showers. Like, like where is this film going from now? I'm intrigued. It, it's Not gonna lie. intrigued. And then you got Margot Robbie showing up, as gorgeous as ever, Golden Globe nominee for Best Actress. Although if she wins the Oscar, they might want to rename it rather than best actress, call it most actress. I mean it's definitely a over the top histrionic performance, but There's no question. She's entertaining. She's funny. She's playing a silent film actress who's trying to break into that world and is obviously more talented than people realize. She's got her Jersey accent. She's real tough, hard edge. But when the camera comes on, she pops and she becomes a movie star. The movie also co-stars Brad Pitt, who does have his amusing moments. You've seen it in the trailer; he's dancing, being silly. But he's also quieter and more subdued. He's more self-aware of the fact silent movies are coming to an end. He's been a big star, but now the talkies are coming. And his character was actually based on a composite of two actual actors who who found it very tough to transition from silent movies to talkies. And you say, "Well, why is that?" But I'm like, "Look at what a difference it is. If you're a silent film actor, it's all about your presence. Once your voice gets used, that's a different instrument. So all of a sudden, your your acting style is different, and being able to." The use your voice and maybe audiences aren't used to the sound of your voice how you're using it hitting your marks etc so I thought Pitt's performance was particularly very good because it was more grounded than Robbie's performance both of them by the way nominated for Golden Globes Pitt's up for Best Supporting Actor but the way I would describe it as a blurb this is like Wolf of Wall Street set in the Roaring Twenties you've got Scorsese-esque tracking shots thrilling jazz score drugs booze partying decadence debauchery all that's going on Diego Calva plays the main role he's that guy who the audience identifies with kind of looking around at the party scene go, what is going on here? This is out of control. Um, and he's very good in the movie. Jeff Garland has a cameo. Love Kirby Enthusiasm. Yeah. Former guest of cinephile. He shows up in the movie. It's much merriment and delirium. And there's also... It's really hilarious behind-the-scenes shooting. There's one scene within a scene where Margot Robbie's trying to nail something and they're first experimenting with sound. It- it's one of the funniest scenes in the year. They do like 10 different takes. Sound technicians get mad. The ADs get mad. Directors get mad. She's getting mad. It's just a whole challenge of sound, but it's it's a really funny sequence. But ultimately, Man. as I said, Babylon, it's a movie for movie people. Um, you know, it's-, it's a movie for cinephiles if you appreciate, not even silent film, just what film was like 100 years ago. It's overstuffed and it's definitely excessive and ridiculous, But I appreciate the ambition. I appreciate the audacity. And Tobey Maguire actually showing up again. Hadn't seen him in a movie in years. Maguire shows up like in the final third of the movie. I don't even want to give it away. It's just one of the most disgusting, strangest sequences you can imagine as he takes them into a party where there's this lair, where there's this crazy stuff going on. The actual ending of the film is just an homage to movies, which is really, again, bold from Damien Chazelle. As I said, it's a mighty swing for the fences. I'm sure at times it's going to strike out for some people. It's a love it or hate it type movie. But most of
1: it, I loved it. I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. This is going to sound so millennial of me. Uh, uh, silent movies. How did they like? They can't be good.
0: Oh come on! They can't That's be it. good.
1: <laughs> like how is there like how are how do you progress? Like it, it's just all silent. Like well, one of my favorite. all like my my favorite silent movie is called Sunrise, which is by F.W. Murnau, the great German expressionist. And to so point, in this movie, yeah. are, do the people interact, or is it like are they mouthing no, no, words, so and you just mouth s-
0: it, And then it goes to. Um, like a credit sequence and you see the words being written so it's like you see them mouthing it and then it's white on black saying how dare you talk to me like that and then it goes back to them walking oh, together and then it's like sounds terrible not in Babylon. I'm saying in actual silent film. No, I know. Yeah, in yeah. real
1: silent I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want, I'm intrigued, honestly. What's your favorite one? I want to watch that Sunrise one. Sunrise is fantastic. Maybe <laughs> for the new year. The first episode of the new year. I will watch that and give you my it thoughts on It came out in on
0: 1927. Like, I don't know if you're going to be able Like 95 years ago, you're going to watch this film. I think it's, it's Was awesome. it
1: on HBO Max? What is it? It's
0: probably, yeah, it's probably on HBO Max. I was going to say it's probably on TCM. <laughs> Sight and Sound just released. There's this you know, collection of, like, real film intellectuals. They do their best 100 movies of all time every 10 years. So, you know, 2012 was the last time. It just came out. The number one movie, nobody's even heard of. Like, this is how obscure it is. Like, I saw that and I go, I've never even heard of this movie. After that, there's movies I've heard of. Like, The Godfather previously was number one or number three. was number 12. I'm like, what? How is this not not the top 10? But, like, the number one movie is called Janine and I was like, no one's even heard of this film. It was a French film. After that, movies you've heard of. No, I'm kidding. But, like, you know, I Vertigo. Hitchcock's Vertigo is number two. I'm bringing this up because Murnau's film, the one that I love, Sunrise, I believe, may have made the top 10. Top I Gun s- Maverick? Where no, is no, it, no, that or... did not make the top 10. Okay. Gene Dealman is the number one film of all time on the site and sample. It came out in early December. Vertigo, Hitchcock's film, number two, which is awesome. F.W. Murnau's Sunrise is in the top 10. But as far as like movies you and I have heard of, you have to get, like, The Godfather, number 12. Sound wow. Music, Number one. One is Gene Dealman, twenty-three Quad du Commerce, Vertigo. Are you like? Have you
1: seen that? You must be intrigued no, to watch I, I it. I if it's it. One. No, I gotta see that. It's
0: Graceland Walton, nineteen seventy-five French film, and apparently it is on HBO Max. I gotta look that up. Vertigo's two, Citizen Kane's three, Tokyo Story four, In the Mood for Love five, two thousand one, A Space Odyssey six. Beau Travail is number seven. Mulholland Drive two thousand one came out number eight. Man is with Space movie Odyssey camera? good. Space Odyssey is awesome. Oh my god, great! I gotta, yeah. I gotta watch so that. You gotta see it. Watch, that. 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 watch that. with that. your dad. You watch yeah. with Stu Gatz, actually. He'll drop a couple of those, and you'll be, he'll be ready to rock. Man with the Movie <laughs> Camera, Singing in the Rain is number 10. Sunrise, the one I told you about, Silent Film, number 11. Godfather, number 12. Anyways, that was just an aside. If you want to watch your silent movies, number 12 <laughs> movie of all time, F.W. Burner Sunrise, maybe, maybe. Chris Cody will watch that with a review forthcoming. Uh, another film to talk about was coming out this Friday, it's Women Talking, the synopsis. Oh, sorry, let's get a couple of reviews here, Babylon, in case you're wondering. Uh, Thomas Lafley, Shimmering, Mournful, and Riotous. Babylon is one of the year's best movies, thanks in part to a star-making performance by Diego Calva. Uh, Radian Sumanpali of CTV's Your Morning, La La Land on Coke. That's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, I like that one. And Matt Singer of Screen Crush. Chazelle is so enamored with his simulcrum of this forgotten world that he loses sight of the people in it. Ouch. Mm. I disagree. I, I think he knows what he's doing. Women Talking, coming out this Friday. Canadian director Sarah Polley, she wrote and directed. She's nominated for the Golden Globe Best Screenplay. Here's the synopsis. Do nothing, stay and fight, or leave. In 2010, the women of an isolated religious community grapple with reconciling a brutal reality with their faith. Excellent cast. Rooney Mara, Jesse Buckley, uh, Claire Foy, Frances McDormand, Emily Mitchell... Uh, many others. Ben Wishaw playing like the one male who is actually a sympathetic figure. Polly adapted the book and she mentioned the fact that I didn't want to actually show the sexual assault. It's about a bunch of women in this community who have been sexually assaulted. She goes, I'm not going to show that though. I'm not going to show the rape. To me, there's nothing positive being gleaned from that. I'll show the aftermath. I'll show these women bloodied and damaged both physically and emotionally and what are they supposed to do? And this movie is a pretty bold concept. It's a bunch of women in a hayloft. It was shot in Toronto at a soundstage and they're going to sit around and discuss what should they do? What are their options? these men are terrorizing them you know they they've raped them they've abused them what do you do now the film is coming with much fanfare i was very excited for it but i got to tell you as my wife turned to me halfway through and she was on her phone looking at reels on instagram this movie is just a lot of women talking <laughs> i said yeah that's the movie it's an hour 40 and she goes i thought there'd be a little bit more action i go no they're they're in a hayloft and they're talking that that's the movie when it says women talking there's no car chases there's no romance here it's women talking they're arguing they're fighting for their lives and I have to be honest with you. I, it was a little stilted for my tastes. I, again, I appreciate the acting. I like the script by Sarah Polly because it is intelligent and I think it's inventive in its own way. She tries to add some directorial flourishes, some flashbacks. and um, it, it is an important subject matter. But again, as a movie, it's going to be tough to recommend to somebody, hey, December 24th, the night before Christmas, go watch an hour 40 of women talking and how to deal with sexual abuse. The story itself, by the way, Again, you think while watching it, it's like set in the 1930s, but that's one of the craziest parts of it. It's a Mennonite community in 2010 being treated by these by these Men like this. The women who are saying, "Let's leave," saying, "Hey, we haven't made a pact with God. We're not going to leave. These men will be punished one day." You know, it's more important. Jesus taught us to forgive. Those who want to leave say, "No, I'm tired of this crap. Like they're going to keep mistreating us and go." And some of the women are like, "No, we're going to stay and fight. Like we're going we're to get these guys back." Like the Lord also taught us about vengeance. So it's rare to see themes of religion being put in films these days. And certainly, uh, a story of female empowerment is important. But as far as an entertaining film, I'm going to go with two and a half maple leaves for women talking, despite the noble. From Sarah Pauley. Charlotte O'Sullivan of London Evening Standard. Lovers of the novels of Marilyn Robinson or Elizabeth Strout will swoon over the film's pacing. It's aesthetic is just as quietly bold. Robbie Collin of Daily Telegraph, despite a morose color palette that can feel a little eat your vegetables at times, the film is beautifully performed and gripping in a chewy, nuanced, contemplative way. And Adam Naaman of The Ringer, I like this review. What holds up on the page is a sociologically loaded thought experiment about complicity and forgiveness is undermined by Polly's monotonous cornering of her own arguments and some undisciplined filmmaking choices. Women talking, I liked it. I didn't love it. I'm going two and a half Maple Leafs. A few more here for you. The Inspection. I watched this film for one reason, one reason only. Jeremy Pope is nominated for Best Actor, Golden Globe. And here's the story. A young gay black man rejected by his mother and with few options for his future decides to join the Marines, do whatever it takes to succeed in a system that would cast him aside. You know, in a world of bloated movies here, Avatar was three hours and two minutes. Babylon was three hours and one minute. This is a film which is nice and tight. The inspection is 90 minutes long and it is based on the real-life experiences of Elegance Bratton. What an awesome name, by the way. Elegance Bratton, writer and director. It's based on his own experiences as he himself was a young gay black man in the Marines facing homophobia and just mistreatment and just horrible, horrible situations. Bokeem Woodbine plays the drill instructor in charge. He plays Laws. Pope plays a man named Ellis French and Gabrielle Union Mrs. Dwayne Wade, she plays and uh, French, who's his mother. Now, again, based on real life, his mother rejected him for being gay. And Gabrielle Union is here a couple of times talking to him as he's going towards the military, and she's telling him, "Now they're going to know who you are. Like they're they're going to they're going to beat the gay out of you, so to speak." And she's rejected him, and he's looking for somewhere of belonging. And where does he go? He goes to boot camp, and he can't keep his secret quiet for long. Eventually, they find that he's gay. They're mistreating him, but his performance is one of real intensity. I mean, the way he keeps his his dignity and his ferocity despite the fact he's being mistreated. He wants to prove he can be a Marine. He wants to be desperately involved and belonging somewhere. And he's hoping it's here in the Marines. And one of the the better performances in the movie is from Raul Castillo. He plays Rosales. At one point, you know, Pope's characters, you can imagine these guys are putting him through the grinder. And Rosales is like the one sympathetic character. He's kind of like Willem Dafoe's character in Platoon. And, you know, he's kind of not taking a shine to Pope, but he's looking out for him, saying, listen, man, like, we need you here, and blah, blah, blah. But then Pope ends up fantasizing about him. Like, he's in the bathroom one day, and he's, he's fantasizing that Rosales is going to come, and he's going to start blowing him. And at one point, Rosales is taking a shower at night. Pope shows up, you know, completely buck naked, starts to make a move, and Rosales like, hey, easy, easy. Like, like, look, get in your clothes, and we talk to you outside. He's like, I'm not gay, but you know how many gay guys we've had in the military? Like, we can't just weed all of you guys out. Like, I'm not into this thing, but I'm into you being here and I want to be here for you and protect you and it's a really good scene and, and you can see even Pope's sadness like his guy's just getting his ass kicked and there's this one guy who's being kind to him and he's emotionally attracted to him and this guy's stomping on his heart while still saying hey I appreciate you I just don't appreciate you in that manner but excellent performances uh, Pope might get an Oscar nomination Gabrielle Union's amazing Like she, she ends up coming back in the movie a little bit later on and I'm mean, talking about a woman Oof! She is not supportive of her son and his choices of being gay. And it's, uh, as I said, based on a true story by Elegance Bratton. I'm giving it three beliefs. I was pleasantly surprised by The Inspection, which is a very good movie. I was very disappointed by our next film, White Noise, starring Adam Driver. Who doesn't love Adam Driver? John Oliver's got a huge crush on him. The movie's called White Noise. It's in limited theaters, and it's on Netflix on December 30th. Here's the story dramatizes a contemporary American family's attempts to deal with the mundane conflicts of everyday life while grappling with the universal mysteries of love, death, and the possibility of happiness in an uncertain world. While at Moss, Miami, somebody actually came up to me and goes, hey, have you seen White Noise? And I said, no, I'm, I'm curious to see it. I have the screener. And he goes, I read the book. And I said, I've heard the book is unfilmable. Like I heard it's an awesome book by Don DeLillo, but good luck making a movie. And clearly, they didn't make a very good movie. Noah Baumbach (laughs) wrote and directed it. This is the same guy who did Marriage Story. He's obviously a very talented writer, director. Marriage Story was one of my top ten films of that year. Driver was incredible in that movie, as was Scarlett Johansson. But this movie is an absolute misfire. I mean, this is one of the worst films of the year. It is completely witless and and frustrating and annoying. And it was difficult to get through. And I I get what it's going for. It's trying to be satirical and funny and goofy and light. And I must credit Netflix. They sent me a ton of stuff. Wow, they're really trying to buy me over. They sent me a giant book of white noise, just like pictures from the movie, picture book, so to speak, stories, anecdotes. They sent me the screenplay of white noise. They sent me an A&P sweatshirt, okay, because a lot of this takes place in the supermarket there. Good old A&P, shout out. They sent me a pack of gum, white noise, trying to buy my way, but I'm not going to do it. This is a bad movie all the way around. Even Don Cheadle, who's always a great performer, he can't even save this movie. I just found it to be very drab. Boring, silly, and ridiculous. I'm giving it one Maple Leap It's one of the worst films of the year. White Noise. How about these reviews? Donald Clark of Irish Times. The costumeers and makeup folk have worked hard on Gerwig and Driver. Yeah, Greta Gerwig's in it too. Noah Bombach's real life wife. But both still look dressed up for a particularly boring Halloween party. The former is 1980s Deirdre Barlow, the latter as recovering train spotter. Dimitri Samaroff of Chicago Raider. The structural problems remain. There's a campus comedy, a disaster flick, and a crime caper that never cohere by like Blombach. Bak's Gladney family much more than DeLillo's, and Linda Merrick of the Jewish Chronicle, departing from his comfort zone of neurotic yet very relatable characters, Bombach has managed to deliver something rather special here. I couldn't disagree more. White Noise premiered at the Venice Film Festival, and I remember at the Times said, "Oh wow, this will be a big Oscar contender." Then the reviews came out, and they said they were respectful at best. There's a reason why White Noise is being snubbed. The only nomination, as I mentioned, Adam Driver is up for Best Actor, Comedy, or Musical. Well, that just feels like a nomination because people love Adam Driver. It is not a good film. A couple of blurbs here for The Inspection. Sarah Ty Black of Globe and Mail. With The Inspection, Bratton has continued working with a humanist lens through which he shaped his captivating 2019 documentary Peer Kids. Nick Shager of The Daily Beast, a stunning look at a gay man's terrifying triumphant time at Marines Boot Camp, and Odie Henderson of Boston Globe. Bratton's unique perspective is so much more interesting when you hear him talk about the inspection that you often wonder where it is when you're watching it and one last one here marcel the shell with shoes on this is proof why you can never trust the critics 99 percent right now rotten tomatoes and i thought it was one of the worst movies of the year cloying infuriating insufferable it is an animated movie done as a documentary it is as i described a shell with an eye and two shoes and it's one of the most Honestly, obnoxious characters you could possibly imagine. It's a documentary of this shell, Marcel, telling you about his life, going around the house. Uh, I I honestly thought it was appalling. Jenny Slate is the voice of Marcel. Could not be more obnoxious or infuriating. Dean Fleischer Camp is the director. Critics loved it. They went crazy for it. Maybe they will get nominated, but I thought it was a complete waste of time. Marcel The Shell with Shoes On. So much so, I tried watching it. My son, Dean, who's 11, watches everything. We got 30 minutes in this movie. and He goes, Can we just fast forward a little bit? This is pretty boring. I don't like documentaries. It's 80 minutes, and even my kids who will watch anything couldn't get through 80 minutes of Marcel The Shell with Shoes On, one of the worst films of the year. I'm giving it one Maple Leaf. That's six movie reviews in the books. Now it's time for our wild card michael Starr, a new book about one of the great insult comics of all time
2: another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals
0: Our real pleasure bringing bring author Michael Starr. The book is called Don Rickles, Merchant of Venom. Michael is a longtime writer of the New York Post. He's written many biographies of uh, terrific comedians and actors of the past. And once again, he has done an excellent job here turning his light towards Mr. Rickles. Michael, thank you so much for the time. Congrats on a terrific book.
2: No, thank you. Thanks for having me on.
0: I, I love the opening anecdote. I'm a huge Sinatra fan. So I love the fact that, you know, that relationship that they had, Rickles and Sinatra was born out of the fact uh, Don was fearless enough to take shots at him. The, the hysterical, the way he just started making fun of him, saying, make yourself at home, Frank, why don't you go slug someone? Well, why do you think Sinatra took such a liking to Rickles? I mean, Sinatra is obviously undeniably charismatic, but why do you think Frank let Rickles make fun of him when Sammy Davis Jr. once took even a small criticism of Frank, and Sinatra froze right. him out for years. Why did he let Rickles do it?
2: I, I think some of that had to do with the fact that Don's mother was friends with uh, with Frank's mother, Dolly Sinatra, Etta Rickles. And I think that had something to do with it initially, um, you know, when Frank showed up at the club and Don said he didn't know he was going to be there. Go ahead, Frank, hit somebody. Um, and And, you know, from there, he just... I think he liked Don's wise ass New York attitude, um, and he was just. Uh, it's a it's a fair point though because you're right. I mean, for a little while, Joey Bishop sort of could make fun of Sinatra, but not real. You know, sort of in a way, but nobody was as vicious as Rickles was. But I, you know, I think Frank knew that. Rickles Don Rickles knew. You know, not when. there was a line he would never cross he would sort of go up to that line and never cross it and I think um Sinatra respected that I mean listen it's not it wasn't easy to be friends with Frank Sinatra right as you pointed out Sammy Davis Jr couldn't get away with he I think it was a radio interview he made a crack about Frank and and then he you know he was he was on Frank's you know shit list for for quite a while but you know, Rick, but Rickles made fun of everybody, and and I think the fact that he made fun of other celebrities helped also. It wasn't just Sinatra. Yeah, and uh, they had a really nice relationship for for you know fifty plus years.
0: One of the best aspects of the book is the fact that you're pointing out there's literally two sides to Don Rickles. There's the guys, you know, the insult comic who's like racist and like making ethnic jokes and just no holds barred. But then also a guy who's an absolute sweetheart and who is beloved by so many people and you know, doting father, husband, all the rest of it. Where did like the style, the insult comic, where was that born? Like you talk about Rickles and how he's he starts his comedy, but when did he really realize that, you know what? I'm just going to go after people, and that's going to be my style of comedy.
2: You know, yeah, Don was playing at a, a strip club down in Washington, D.C. Um, he had he had a, you know, a quote unquote, a stand up act. It was kind of more like performance art. I mean, he he didn't he would tell stories. He, he was never a joke teller, per se. Um, and he had this thing called part of his act, the man with the glass head, where he would put this like. You'd have to imagine he had a glass bowl on his head, and, and people could read his thoughts. It was bizarre. Yeah. It didn't work, obviously. So he was at this. He was paying his dues, and he was at this strip club in in Washington. And and the guys, you know, most, you know, they were guys there. Started sailors from 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 you know the Navy Yard and stuff started to to heckle him, and he just he heckled them back. And he discovered he had this. They laughed. They didn't slug him, and he and he had this. He he discovered he had this um this talent for. Honing for you know, sort of zeroing in on somebody's whether it was their looks or th- what they were wearing, uh, and, and he would just sort of target on that. And and other people enjoyed laughing at him making fun of other people as long as they weren't the target. But actually, people after a while wanted to be made fun of by Don Rickles, and it was sort of a a badge of honor. And I think when he was more successful because he could make fun of celebrities and say things to them that the public really wanted to say but couldn't, and and Don just went ahead and spoke his mind, and they knew it was all in fun. Yeah,
0: that's why the only one I can think of today is Ricky Gervais, like in the way you're describing somebody who the, the celebrities go, oh, I don't mind him making fun of us at the Golden Globes, but even Gervais will sometimes cross that line, and then yeah. you see the reaction of the audience, whoever's being offended, <laughs> because, hey, he went a little bit too far, but you're right, it's, it's a really tough challenge to do that, and it's almost like Rickles, like I think he wrote in the book, he was almost grandfathered in, like him and Rodney Dangerfield could do that. Like, I don't think a dog Don Rickles could survive today. I, I know I'm saying Gervais is kind of like that, but to be like Don, it's no, I, I don't think you no. can do it.
2: I don't think you can do it either. I mean, it, it was the tenor of the times when Don came of age as, a, as an insult comic where, for the most part, comics at that time, were they weren't doing what Don was doing. They're, you know, mother-in-law jokes and, you know, boy, I took this flight and, you know, boy, was it was terrible. Here comes this guy making fun of people. and But it, it was such a, a human connection because let's face it everybody's critical and everybody's thinking they might be thinking the same thing you know that guy's fatter how could he marry you know don would say you know is that your wife or you know is it a moose you know (laughs) but but people laughed i mean you know there yes he there were times he did cross the line and there are some stories in the book of when he was in vegas in the early 60s and he made fun of a, a a mobster from new jersey his wife and the mobster you know would threaten to break don's legs and Don reached out to his friend, Connie Francis, who knew people. She was connected back in Jersey and Don's le- legs lived to see the rest of his life. But people had a sense of humor about it. And let's face it, if you once Don made a name for himself, you knew what you were going to see and you knew what you were going to get. Even people who went to see him in Las Vegas, they knew. I mean, and the the it was funny because the people who ran the entertainment, let's say he was at the Sahara, which he played at for a long time, the entertainment manager would pick out people that he knew Don was going to focus in on and put them in like the first, second, or third row within Don's eyesight. And, you know, and boom, it was, you know, what, is that your wife or, is, you know, what are you wearing? You, you look like a, you know, what, are you a schmuck? You know, blah, blah, blah. and But he made fun of everybody, all races, creeds, ethnicities. Don was Jewish. He made fun of Jewish people. He made fun of blacks, Hispanics, across the board. And I think that that was what, quote, unquote, allowed him to get away with it was because he wasn't focusing in on one specific ethnic group. He made fun of everybody, including himself and his wife. And, um, you know, and so nothing was off limits, but people could laugh at it. And he would, he would sometimes go a little too far at the end of his saying, you know, I mean, you know, I love everybody. I make fun of it. It's like, you know, almost like thou doth protest too much. But people accepted it. It was the tenor of the times. It, as you said, it, you know, today, there's no way. He'd be canceled in five minutes. I mean, he might be grandfathered if he was still alive and he was, you know, 90 year old Don Rickles. He did towards the end of his career when he was, uh, I think it was in 2012, he was part of an American Film Institute um, tribute to Shirley MacLaine. And he made, you know, he made fun of Shirley. MacLaine. You can watch it on YouTube. He made fun of Shirley MacLaine. Every, everybody who was there, Martin Scorsese, he just made a film with him. But he did make a Barack Obama joke, who was, you know, president then. Something about you know I invited Obama over, but he didn't bring his mop. You know, and everybody was like, <gasps> you know, it was Hollywood, very liberal audience. The gasp, and then like thirty seconds later, he had him back in the palm of his hand, and all they had forgotten about the joke, and he went on. And yeah. interestingly enough, though, when they when they did air that on TV, they 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 cut the Obama joke. So I guess there were some things that even Don Rickles couldn't get away with, but he never he re- he was rarely political in that sense. I mean, he found it. He was friendly with Ronald Reagan. So, you know, he, he would make make fun of Reagan's age and, you know, Nancy and everything. But it was very good natured. He he never he made fun of politicians across the board like he did uh, with people and their looks and their mannerisms. So it was accepted. But, yeah, I don't think today he, he could he couldn't get away with it.
0: I think Jay Leno made a great point when he said it wasn't necessarily the joke as it was written, but it was Don's delivery and his style of it, the facial muggings, the expressions, yeah. the tone. Like it, yeah. it was, if, if you yeah. saw the joke as written, he goes, it wasn't necessarily very funny. He goes, but when Rickles did it, it was inimitable and hysterical.
2: Yeah. And it was that rapid fire patter. I th- there's some quotes in the book from, um, from a writer who says, you know, if you actually listen to some of Don's. Mon, you know when when he's making fun of people what are you saying like makes no sense if you think about it you know i'm gonna shoot a bracket out of my ass and blah, 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 you know it's like you know i'm gonna sit in a rubber tree and you know show you up. but but it was you're right it was the way he delivered it and 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 if you were in the audience and you could see him live his, his the facial his facial expressions the way he he would prowl the stage like a panther you know sweating and and you know with the eyes bulging and you know pointing the finger um, but, you know, and but I, to me, one of the one of the greatest ways to see Rickles, especially in the 60s and 70s, was on late night television. I mean, when he was on that, when he it was mostly I mean, he did all the late night shows, but the Johnny Carson sh- uh, shows are classics, especially when Sinatra was on. Yeah. And, um, you know, Don would walk on unannounced like Bob Hope would do sometimes sit down, didn't matter who was sitting next to him, he would turn, Ed McMahon, he would rip into Ed, he'd rip into Sinatra, Michael Landon, you know, whoever happened to be sitting next to him, Pat Boone, who I don't think appreciated it, but most people did, and it was a badge of honor to be to be made made fun of by the Merchant of Venom.
0: I think a lot of audiences today appreciate his work, you know, in movies, especially something like Casino. You mentioned Scorsese. I was watching when Marty got the AFI Life Achievement Award in Rickles' you know, started praising him, but then he started making fun of him and saying, you know, Marty, aside from Clint Eastwood, you're the biggest name here. And now Clint Eastwood is just happy his name was mentioned tonight. <laughs> right. but, 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 but the stories of Casino, I mean, there's these great outtakes. You've seen them on YouTube as of I when he's, you know, making fun of De Niro's mumbling and making fun of Scorsese for being so short. And like, you know, why don't you get a chair, Marty, if you're going to direct? Oh, stand
2: on but, a phone book, Marty, so we can see you. Yeah. Right.
0: <laughs> but I love the story. Tell the audience, to those who have not read the book, how did Ileana Douglas, who was dating Scorsese at the time, and the great Bob Costas, my friend, influence the casting of Don Rickles in Casino?
2: Yeah, it's one of those six degrees, right? It's it's a strange story. Um, Ileana Douglas had seen Don on Bob Costas, had the Later later with Bob Costas, a late night show on NBC. And he had Don Rickles on. It was a two-parter. And Don made Costas laugh so much that he actually literally fell off his chair. And they, they broke it up. It was so great that they broke it up into two parts. But also Don got very serious. And he was talking about his son had recently passed away. He was 41. And he got very worked up talking about his son. But it was so such a personal thing and he was telling such great showbiz stories and iliana douglas was was dating martin scorsese when they were casting for um casino and he was looking for kind of like a vegas kind of hard like a like a vegas lifer kind of character who could you know who you would believe in this role and she mentioned um don rickles she had seen him and she and don was like so he was like mr vegas right like wayne newton and he knew about Vegas. He he knew how the system worked. He had a great sense of humor, although this role didn't call for humor. But he was such a such like a Vegas character. And she was so impressed with that, that she recommended that um, Martin Scorsese watch that interview and get in touch with Don. And, and the rest is history. He, he hired him. And, and that was Don was so proud of that role because he always wanted to be a dramatic actor. It wasn't a huge role. He was in a few scenes, but the fact that he was working with martin scorsese you know mr goodfellas and 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 de niro and it was a serious movie you know don had done movies in the in the 60s you know beach blanket bingo and had a stuff a wild bikini you know stuff like that <laughs> but he had trained as a, as a dramatic act, actor and he always i think if there was if don if you had if you asked him and he, and he said there was one quote unquote disappointment in his career would have been that he didn't make it as a dramatic actor in his mind. But he just he loved to act. And I think that was the highlight of his career. And then he had Toy Story at the same time, right? Opening up to a whole generation. It wasn't a he was playing a a Mr. Potato Head and younger viewers and and an audience discovered Don Rickles and really Gave his career a big boost at that time. Yeah, I love that Ileana
0: Douglas recommends James Woods to play the scumbag boyfriend. Marty goes, Yeah, sure. Dodd Rickles, he had to be sold on. Like, he had to watch the interview yeah, yeah, yeah. first. Yeah. He's like, Okay, yeah. James Woods, no problem. He could definitely play the scumbag. Yeah. But Rickles as the face of, like, a Vegas guy. As you said, the most memorable scene is when Pesci beats him up. That's probably the most oh, it's memorable a telephone, scene. telephone, yeah. Yeah, he kicks the crap out of him. Um, yeah. you, you mentioned Toy Story. A quick thought of Mr. Potato Head. The fact that he himself joked, you know, my grandsons know me about this after all these years, but that I mean, that's a massive franchise. How much money did he make from that?
2: He, made, he he was compensated quite well and he didn't want to do it at first and and they had a i think with John Lasseter they like, had a he met with Rip Don in in his, his malibu house to sort of convince him to do this and don's like what about you know what do I know what do I want to do an animated character for but when he saw you know it was mr potato head it was kind of a wise guy it was sort of like rickles right i mean cleaned up obviously for children but um he had that that new york wise guy attitude um Targeted to 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 a uh, to a younger audience, and yes, I mean, kids knew him from that, and his own grandchildren knew him from that. They they didn't know, you know the insult comedian making fun of people. They knew him, you know, as this, this lovable Mr. Potato Head character, and it really did open up uh, another door for him.
0: I love the you mentioned the Larry Sanders show, which is my favorite show. Rickles was on that show. Just imagine him and Rip Torn swapping stories in that set. But, <laughs> but I wish the show, Richard Lewis is one of my favorite comedians. I wish that show he did with Richard Lewis, Daddy Dearest, would have fared better. But Lewis, I thought, explained it brilliantly. He said, like, Don just wasn't, used to this. He wasn't used to memorizing lines, that character is exactly what you're saying. He's not going to be written for a character. He's like he's better at the M. Jim Graham and Sinatra. And Lewis made be the best point, which is that if Rickles had a Kirby Enthusiasm type show, which of course Richard has bombed his good friend Larry Davis, yes. th- that would have been a huge hit. I'm like that would have been the perfect vehicle for Don Rickles.
2: Right. You also you also had two two guys on on, on Daddy Dearest who who were very ingrained in their in their in their personas, right? You had you had Richard the neurotic guy and then you had Don the, the and to try, to try to put both of them together in a 22-minute sitcom in one box, um, it just, I think the styles clashed. And I, I think Richard says that in the book and not in a bad way. I mean, he loved Don and Don enjoyed working with him. It just, it didn't, it didn't, their two styles didn't really mesh well. And again, in a sitcom, you're right. I think it had it been, and Richard was right, had it been a sort of a stream of consciousness, you know, we have sort of an outline of a script, but not really like Curb Your Enthusiasm. For Don, that would have worked a lot better.
0: Uh, the book is fabulous. It's called Merchant of Venom. Those are just a few of the highlights. All about Don Rickles. But I encourage all of you to check out the book from Michael Starr, available now in bookstores. And of course, continue to read his excellent work for the New York Post. Michael, this was fun. Maybe to close, you can give me a couple of your favorite insults that Don Rickles ever gave people. If you have a, if you have a top five, so to speak.
2: Well, I think yeah. I mean, some of them are actually were in the book. There was, a, you know, he's like he was talking, he was talking about Frank Sinatra, and he said, you know, when you enter a room, you have to kiss Frank's ring. I don't mind, but it's in his back pocket. (laughs) You know, he would talk about Italians, you know, they can work you over, you know, in an alley, but they're singing while they're singing an opera, you know, that that, that kind of thing, you know. and he, I, one of his favorite targets was, you know, I don't, I can't off p- the top of my head, but Ernest Borgnine, his looks basically, and he would pick on Ernie and they were actually friends and they did the odd couple together in a touring company later on. Yeah. But when, especially after Borgnine won the Oscar for Marty, I mean, you know, Ernest Borgnine was not being paid for his looks, you know, and Rickles would just go off on him. calling him a gorilla and low hanging fruit and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, so he was, uh, you know, and he always had the standard line about his wife, right? She jangling her jewelry signaling the ships you know so they can see the glint from her from her gold jewelry you know and he would joke about his honeymoon with his wife you know Is it over yet you know i haven't even started you know so yeah he was just uh yeah and you i would just urge people you know you can go on youtube and watch don a lot of his stand-up stuff but just particularly on late night television. That's what he, to me, was the best.
0: Yeah, truly one of a kind. Great stuff, Michael. Thank you. Best of luck. Thanks, with Chris. Congrats.
2: Thanks a lot.
1: He called you Chris at the end. He did. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna keep He said, it thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Just
0: keep him saying thanks, Chris. All right, thanks once again to Michael Starr. I mean, Don Rickles, it's amazing. A different generation of people now know him. From Toy Story and Casino, but this guy's been around since the '50s. These old school comedians, Cody, you gotta appreciate the longevity of these guys.
1: Don Rickles is—I always have to really think hard to not mix up Don Rickles and Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> like, like for like part of that interview, I was listening to it, I was like, oh wait, they're not talking about Rodney Dangerfield. Like those two, for some reason, I get mixed up. But yes, classic, classic comedian Don Rickles. But
0: you're right because they, they were grandfathered in together, both insult comics, both kind of big guys, the the the, the yeah. googly eyes kind of thing. It's a it's an easy mix up to make. He's uh, so
1: right in that interview talking about how Don at his best though was like just sitting on a a late night being a guest on a late night show and just giving it to the guy like I I in his older years on Fallon he did it like even if it was Fallon or Whoever he was on. It was just, even in his old age, just still, you could see there. Like, like, he's older now, but still, just, there's no one funnier than this guy.
0: Darren DiMaterio, a buddy of mine who was a a guest booker on Oberman, I believe now still works on Get Up at ESPN. He worked on Letterman for years as a guest booker, and he said, you know, they booked Rickles however many times. Letterman never wanted to go for dinner with anybody. It was Letterman
1: that had Rickles, not not Fallon, yeah.
0: But in the book, he even mentions that at one point, Rickles reached out to Letterman's assistant, like, would Dave like to go for dinner? And she's like, yeah, he's pretty reclusive. When she asked Letterman, he's like, yeah, sure. And then on the show, he was like, "Hey, Don Rickles invited me for dinner." And she was like, "Oh no, now everyone's gonna want to go for dinner with Letterman." But Dave was willing to do it with Rickles. The second time Rickles did the show, Darren DiMaterio, my good friend, who was maybe five six, when Rickles walked by him, goes, "Oh, you've grown since the last time I saw you." <laughs>
1: like, <yes. laughs> like, like, It was a batch off of water. air, they got giving it to a by producer, Rickles. right? So. It's, it's still just doing shtick. Yeah, it's it's
0: the good life of Dom Rickles. Anyways, thanks so much to everybody for supporting Cinephile. This is episode 252. So thanks to everybody for supporting the pod. We'll be back next year with another strong episode. Uh happy, happy holidays to everybody. Merry Christmas. Happy it was a Hanukkah. fun year,
1: Adnan. I, year I, I enjoyed doing this podcast with you. Thank I wanted you, to give you a little end of the year a little I appreciate you, man. I
0: appreciate you too. I appreciate all the hard work. You got all this other stuff you're doing. You're doing your dad's podcast, you're doing the Levitard Show trying to keep up appearances with other people. Uh, sheets and giggles, obviously <laughs> shiggles. I appreciate you giving this time here instead of my man. Uh, thanks to Laura Brandt, our entire crew. Thanks to Bimble. Thanks to Skipper. I'm Adnan Burke. Once again, our episode, next episode, the first one of January, All Quiet on the Western Front, which is available currently on Netflix, The Sun, starring Hugh Jackman, and my top 10 films of 2022. Happy holidays, everybody. I'll see you at the movies.